1: I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of creative writing, music literacy, and reading with Down syndrome. Our first guest is Heather Price, a teacher librarian, and we'll talk about creative writing. Then we'll chat with music education professor Brittany May about what it means to be literate in music. Finally, we'll discuss how to help nurture a love of reading in Down Syndrome children with Vicki Elin, the director of the Wonderwood Academy. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a book review of who could that be at this hour and learn about summer reading programs at libraries. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world.
3: world.
1: Let's talk about adolescence. This term means different things to different people, but most would agree that it begins with the onset of the biological changes associated with puberty, and then ends when a person has fully established himself or herself as an adult. And that usually occurs between the ages of 12 and 18. Beyond these structural definitions, other groups like psychologists look at adolescence in more complex ways. For example, influential psychologist Eric Erickson's theory of psychosocial development describes adolescence as a series of increasingly complex psychosocial crises, during which individuals struggle to achieve individuality and learn to function in society. Erickson believes that for adolescents, the need to form a sense of identity is one of the key developmental challenges for this period of life. To build this sense of identity, adolescents must acquire a sense of mastery, autonomy, sexuality, intimacy, and achievement. Each of these developmental tasks moves an individual towards the formation of his or her identity. What does this all have to do with literacy, you may ask? Well, the reality is that during adolescence, youth move through the developmental changes required of them by extracting information from a variety of sources, including parents, teachers, peers, and often books. That's where literacy makes an impact. For me, books in particular have a unique ability to allow readers to vicariously experience and learn from situations that they may or may not experience in real life, For adolescents in particular, reading is one of the literacy tasks that they engage in that helps them gain necessary understanding, that helps them to formulate their sense of identity as they work to discover their own place in society. Additionally, since all the developmental processes of adolescence focus on becoming an adult, young adult literature has a unique ability to connect with teens, This is why the central theme of most young adult fiction relates to becoming an adult and finding the answer to the question, who am I and what am I going to do about it? Adolescents who face many complex developmental tasks as they form their identities often read because they are growing up and they need guidance to help realize themselves. Because of this, we find here at Rachel's World that it is important to remember that a reader's choice of reading materials is often connected with emotional and developmental needs.
4: Rachel's World!
1: Making a work of fiction is an extremely creative process. Characters, scenes, plots, settings, all of them have to come from somewhere. Writers are constantly on the lookout for inspiration throughout all aspects of their lives. Today, we have in the studio Heather Price, who is not only a librarian, but she's also a writer. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. Heather, you are a librarian and a writer, and I, I think that that's really interesting because when we think of librarians, we often think of readers, right? A lot mm-hmm. of people tell me my job is to sit around and read books all day, which is totally not true. <laughs> I would love that job. I don't yeah, I know, I don't know that, what job that is, yes. but that's not the job I have. <laughs> I, I would agree. As somebody hire me for, to be that kind yes. of librarian because I'm totally in on that. But, but I don't think we often attach these kind of things as writing. Mm-hmm. So what is it about writing of all kinds and particularly creative writing though what is it that attracts you just as a librarian or as just a human what is it about writing that lets you express yourself
4: I think it's just that that creativity you know that that you know you get that spark of an idea from even something as silly as you know uh, I had a my actually my master's thesis came from a journal entry. I was frustrated with a friend of mine and I'd written down this conversation we'd had and it turned out to be the first chapter of a novel. <laughs> um but I mean, I think just I don't know, trying to make sense of your world, I think in some ways. And I think especially for teenagers, I think that's why a lot of them turn to writing is just this they're looking for ways to express themselves that they're not finding, you know, in a typical classroom and so as a librarian, I like to nurture that. I, I I, you know, I'm very honest with my students about what I struggle with, uh, you know, just getting your seat in the seat and <laughs> making yourself do it is half the battle. Um, I have students that um, will, in November will do um, um National Novel Writing Month. And we have, a you know, our big chart on the wall. And usually they far outright me. <laughs> they, their word counts are off the charts. Um, but I I think, again, it's a way of building community with students that, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that students should be producers of things, not just consumers, whether it's, you know, inventions in our makerspace or writing their own stories. I, I like to kind of try and nurture that creativity.
1: Yeah, I, I think as human beings, one of our very fundamental needs is to create. Mm-hmm. And however that expresses itself, I think sometimes it expresses itself in a lot of different forms. Yeah. But writing, I think, is one of those fundamental things that for most of us, That need to create can express itself. And even if it's not something that we're ever going to get published or, you know, nobody's ever going to see if it's just, you know, our personal journal Mm -hmm. or something that need to write and express ourselves through those kinds of things. I think is really interesting, and and I love this story that you say. You know, you had this conversation with a friend, and then it became the first chapter of a novel. So, why do you think your instinct was to work out this thing that was going on in real life in a fictional kind of context? Why why did you make that switch? Do you think?
4: Uh, you know, that's that's a good question. I actually wrote uh, the intro to that thesis. I I wrote about kind of basing fiction in reality, and and where is that line? How do you? you know, break off from what really happened to what you maybe hoped happened. And I think a part of it is, you know, you're trying to work things out. You're trying to figure things out, you know, because I, you know, it was involving a relationship and I wasn't sure where things were and I was frustrated. And I think, first of all, the conversation was very funny And I, part of me just wanted to capture that, but it also kind of encapsulated everything that was going wrong in it. And I think by writing it down and trying to set it, you know, in a safe place, a fictional place, I think it's easier to work through some of those things maybe. And yeah, that's a novel that will probably never see the light of day, although you've seen it.
1: Yes, I've (laughs) seen it. You're one of the few. I've I've read it. It's a good, it's a good novel.
4: I love it. Uh, Yeah. But I think, and I think especially for students, it's a, it's a safe way to work out some of those emotions, some of those curiosities about the world. Um. Or you're not going to be judged, especially if it's not going to be seen by anyone yeah. else.
1: I, I think that old adage, "Write what you know," mm-hmm. it connects to that really well. And yeah. I think some people, when they say they say that they write what you know, they think that you have to write about your own personal experience in a way that is entirely reflective of that personal experience. But with fiction, what you're doing is you're taking what you know. And switching it up and oh, yeah. making it different. And I, I think that that's an interesting kind of context, particularly with creative writing, mm-hmm. where you can take the world of the imagination and it helps you see the real world more clearly in yeah. those kinds of contexts. Yeah,
4: because you can pull out what you may know is the truth of the emotion. It may You may be able to put it in a fictional setting, but that core of emotion is what you want to really ring true with your authors, I mean, with your readers. And if, you know, if that's based in reality, then I think it makes it selfishly easier as a writer yeah yeah yeah.
1: well and one of those things when I talk to people you know lots of people will put down fantasy and fantasy books and oh it's not real it's escapism mm. and I say to them no that you're missing the point because it may be outside of our normal experience but it's the emotions, it's the way the interpersonal actions happen, it's mm-hmm. the way the plot is put together and the story comes together that helps us to actually see the real world more clearly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Sci-fi for me has told me more about some social and political problems mm-hmm. than reading about those social and political <laughs> problems, right? Yeah, very true. It, yeah, it makes that kind of context. So I think as a writer, it helps you to kind of work through some of that. hmm Trauma.
4: Yeah, <laughs> that's true. How to make sense
1: of my world? <laughs> yeah, and that and that's a good thing because then the readers can you know see your world and yeah. and make sense make of that, that connection. Too. Yeah, yeah. So especially when you're writing, what are some of the biggest challenges? I mean, you mentioned one, just getting your butt in a seat <laughs> and doing and it, doing it. But beyond that, what are some of the greatest challenges you think you have as a writer, or your teens have as writers? Yeah, I
4: think. F- for me, the challenges came, ironically, when I became a librarian. I think when I had a you know, somewhat boring desk job, that was my outlet. That was my creative outlet. You know, I couldn't wait to start working on my novel um, because that was my escape. That was kind of my creative outlet. But when I became a librarian, I suddenly poured all that creativity into my day job. And so then when I got home, I felt like I had nothing left. It was, you know, I felt drained. Um, and also just becoming a librarian and reading so much, which is critical for a writer, but it's also easy to say, Wow. I am not as good as these people. What am I doing writing? I have no business even attempting this because there is so much wonderful writing. So I think just that feeling of inadequacy is one of the hardest things. And it's, uh, that's what I kind of love about teenagers. They don't really have that yet. They, ah, yeah. they still, they have kind of that bravado like, oh yeah, I, this is the next big thing. You know, I'm i am writing the next huge series here. Um, and I really kind of envy that because I don't think they fall into that. We joked earlier about, you know, imposter syndrome that, you know, I'm not really a writer. I'm trying to be. I occasionally write. Um, But yeah, I think that's one of the big struggles for me is just seeing how much wonderful stuff is out there and and trying not to compare first draft of what I'm working on with, you know, final 50th draft of what's been published Uh, because that's very easy to do.
1: Well, and I love that sense of identity, too, because I think sometimes those fears and negatives reduce our sense of identity. Mm -hmm. And and the reality is, even if you've never been published, you're still a writer.
4: Right. As long as you're writing. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think
1: we're all writers. I mean, I do professional writing mostly for my job. And also, you know, I keep a personal journal. But I'm a writer, Right. And Mm -hmm. I I do those kinds of things. And I think particularly when I'm talking with teens, just helping them develop that kind of sense of identity of I am a writer Mm -hmm. helps a lot of things. And I think we can't judge it on, you know, right, the 50th draft of this person (laughs) who went through all this time and effort to get published. If we just embrace it as something that's a part of who we are, then it makes it a whole different kind of of element and and helps us identify ourselves differently. So I mm-hmm. definitely consider you
4: a writer. <laughs> oh, thank you. You, know, you are. <laughs> I will and, remember that. <laughs> no, you are. And I mean, I
1: think it's interesting because you can write in a way that I don't feel comfortable writing. I'm not really comfortable writing fiction. Mm. That's not my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. You know, I do poetry and other kinds of things. But you know, that's a that's a format and a and a way that you express yourself really well. And so. I think that kind of sense is something we need to build mm-hmm. in our teens and and in ourselves even oh, yeah. right to yeah. so we can Try and model, that. model that for for <laughs> yeah. our families and say you know yeah I am a writer because every every time we say I'm not a like I'm not a reader I'm not a writer I'm not a musician right. I'm not an artist I think we're doing ourselves a huge disservice
4: mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely and and setting a bad example for for the teens in our lives that are looking up to us and saying oh well wow, if she's studied writing and she doesn't consider herself a writer, I have no prayer <laughs> of being a writer. And yeah, it's something to be careful of. Yeah. And I, I think it really is
1: tricky because we may not be that writer. Right. Or we may not be <laughs> that musician. Or Where we, we may not be. be that artist, right? Mm-hmm. But we all have that in us and we, we can all express ourselves in that way. So what are some first steps that you suggest to helping – Potential writers, adults, and kids to come to that place where they have that
4: identity and they can start, you know, getting past some of these inhibitions (laughs) that they've created. Um, For me, one of the most useful things I ever did, and I've started again today, I'll have you know, I'm recommitted. Um, I wrote 250 words a day, which doesn't sound like a lot. I mean, that's setting the bar extremely low, but with that comes that sense of accomplishment. It's like I am a writer because I am writing every single day. And when I Started slacking and started giving myself days off. I'm like, oh well, I just want work on weekends or you know if it's a holiday or if I'm on vacation, that's when it fell apart. But as long as I was writing every single day and I had 250 words, you can knock that out. Oh, easy, easily yeah. um, in a few minutes. Um, but then you don't feel that guilt when someone says, oh, have you written anything lately? You don't have to say, oh man, it's been six months. You can say, yeah, last night. And you don't need to tell them what you wrote, but as long as you're writing every single day, even if it's a tiny amount, just the feeling of accomplishment that, you know, if nothing else, write about your day. At the end of a year, you may not have a novel, but you'll have a great journal. Yeah, (laughs) You know, writing writing down, again, a silly conversation you had, you never know when that may spark something else. So that's what I tell students is, you know, just write something every day. You know, it doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be part of a novel. Just write something. Um, And I think that does wonders for your (laughs) self-esteem and for seeing yourself as a writer.
1: I love that sense of just being connected to doing something every day because I think sometimes when we think about grandiose things, whether it's writing or even creating a piece of art, or mm-hmm. you know, learning to play an instrument or reading a novel or something like that, we look at it and we think, "Oh, if we can't sit down and do it from beginning to end, or and we it's, can't, perfect. Yeah, First and try. it's perfect, yeah, it's <laughs> perfect." Like that way, like I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday, and she was saying, "Oh, I, do, I just don't have time to read," and I said, "No." That's not true. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. You do have time to read yeah, because you have five minutes in your day. You know, you have that five minutes you're sitting in the doctor's office waiting for the doctor to come. Mm -hmm. You have that five minutes that, you know, you're sitting outside waiting to pick up the kids from school. You have that five minutes that you just need to de-stress before you go to sleep. Everybody has that. And that you can fill with reading and she's like oh i never thought of it that way and this is the same of true of writing or anything using
4: that found time
1: yeah just Mm -hmm. taking a few minutes and a few minutes can mean a lot in the long run if we if we put that into it and helping Mm -hmm. our kids understand that right saying
4: it just has to be a few minutes yeah because i think they think oh i have to sit down and write for hours and hours and hours and that's not the case you know it little bits can add up to to novels eventually And, and they Add
1: up to the practice that we need yeah. and the expression that we need. And oftentimes... Like for me, my attention span isn't long enough, right? <laughs> that I that I can spend more than that five minutes. But and it's too
4: intimidating yeah, to sit down yeah, to write for three hours. Yeah. But if you have fifteen yeah. minutes, oh yeah, yeah, I can write for fifteen minutes. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, War and Peace is an intimidating novel to read, <laughs> but if you read it in two minutes, increments a day, right. you got it. you right. <laughs> you got it down. Right. Yep. War and Peace is an intimidating novel to write, but if you write two hundred fifty <laughs> words a day, you eventually you'll <laughs> get there. You
4: can write War and Peace. <laughs> <laughs> eventually you'll get there.
1: Thank you, yep. I thank appreciate that, Heather. Thank you. Heather Price is a teacher librarian at Skyridge High School in Alpine, Utah. Now we have story time with Allie Libert reviewing Who Could That Be at This Hour by Lemony Snicket.
0: Today I have a children's book review that I want to share with you. The book that I have is called Who Could That Be at This Hour by Lemony Snicket. Lemony Snicket is the author of the series of unfortunate events, which is one of the series that really defined my childhood. Not that my childhood was a series of unfortunate events, but my father read them to me. So, until recently, the only taste I had of Lemony Snicket was this series of unfortunate events. In preparation for this review, I read a few of his picture books and one book that was a beginning reader. They were fun, cute, silly, and a little weird. The thing about Snicket's picture books is that his signature style involves a lot of long and obscure words, and I worry that for younger readers, those could be a stumbling block if an adult isn't there to help them work through those. That being said, I really enjoy Snicket as a novelist. This one, Who Could That Be at This Hour, is appropriate for older elementary students, maybe even as early as third grade. Who Could That Be at This Hour is the first in a four-part series. The series is called All the Wrong Questions. This book was published in 2012, and they came out yearly after that until all four were out. There's also a companion novel, which is a collection of mini-mysteries. Needless to say, once you get into the Snicket universe, There's a lot to read. You have the 13 in the series of unfortunate events, the Snicket autobiography, and then these five, and then you can do what I did and even explore the picture books. There's a lot to read. But back to who could that be at this hour. The protagonist of this series is a young, lemony Snicket. Fans of the series of unfortunate events will remember that he writes himself into the story, in this series, however, he takes an even more prominent role, from narrator to protagonist. The setting is the same universe as series of unfortunate events, and there are even hints that other characters than just Snicket will cross into this series. The plot of this novel goes something like this. Snicket is whisked The plot of this novel goes something like this. Snicket is whisked away into an old deserted lake town that no longer has a lake. There, he meets an old woman who has lost a valuable item, and she accuses an old enemy of her family of taking it. Snicket teams up with a girl who is the self proclaimed news reporter of this empty town. Together, they start to wonder if the valuable item ever really belonged to the old woman, if the item is even valuable at all, and they wonder if everyone is really who they say they are. There's some danger, there's action, there's clues along the way. There might even be a budding romance. In true Snicket fashion, the reader is left with more questions than answers. A few signature Snicket elements that you'll find in this book are absent parents, grown-ups who don't listen, library investigations, mysterious characters, nonsensical elements added into an otherwise believable text, dark humor, and of course, word definitions. The theme of this book and the name of the entire series is All the Wrong Questions. Snicket uses questions to guide the reader through the mystery. There are several times throughout the story where a character will ask a question like, why do they want the item? And either another character or Snicket as the narrator will say that they should have asked a different question, like, who's really behind this? I think this is a fun way to get kids thinking about critical thinking and could be used in the classroom to study questioning, hypothesis, inferencing, and other things along those lines. Mystery is a fun genre anyways, because of the way it sucks you in and makes you want to solve it. For those of you who are not familiar with Snicket's original series of Unfortunate Events, I would recommend it for really any reader, but they're not necessary to understand these prequel books. I even consider this one to be a little more accessible. I know some people could be deterred from unfortunate events because of the somber tone. For example, right off the bat, the kids are left orphaned. But these books, all the wrong questions, while still dark and mysterious, feel more hopeful and more adventurous than the other series. In summary, fans of Snicket will love these editions, and newcomers might be surprised to find themselves drawn in.
1: While many people view literacy as simply reading and writing, literacy actually reaches a broad range of disciplines. For example, math literacy. Being literate in math enables students to problem solve, reason, and analyze information. Today, however, I want to dive into the world of music literacy. That's why I have Brittany May in the studio, a professor here at BYU who specializes in music education. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you. Brittany is a fantastic professor of music education here at BYU, and she comes with great knowledge and insight. But let's foundationalize a little bit for today. So
2: tell us. What is music literacy?
1: What does that mean?
2: (laughs) Well, it's really funny. Music literacy for a long time has always meant kind of what literacy has meant. And it's reading and writing. Right. But then you look at where we are nowadays with the, you know, advancements in technology and things like that. And we realize that it's more about, you know, engaging people and helping them become literate in Using multiple modalities, I mean, there are all the visual, the kinesthetic, and everything. Um, and so, with music literacy, it's it's helping students have you know meaningful experiences um, with with musical resources that are going to result in in literacies uh, in being. Actually functioning musicians, and that's reading and writing in mu- music. You know, being able to read a score and perform, but that's also being able to negotiate an instrument. You know, being able to figure out how to play an instrument, being able to make the connection between what you're hearing and what you're producing on your voice is is a literacy. Um, being able to listen to a piece of music and recognize that you know this section sounds different than this section, and, and identify the form. So it goes so far beyond just reading and writing to really encompass musicians and how they create and perform and listen to and make connections with music. So So there's a scope
1: for me there from this sense of being able to appreciate and kind of work with music in a kind of aesthetic or your daily life. But then there's also this up to the creation of of music, right? Yeah. Which I I think is a nice broad scope. And I think, you know, when we think of something like writing, there's this sense of, you know, where we write and, you know, then we could be a professional writer, but we may not be a professional writer, Absolutely. but we need it as part of our lives. Yeah. right? So th- the literacies of music are
2: important for that realm of things too. And is that, is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. Well, and, and I think it's really funny because, I mean, consider some of our greatest popular musicians. Paul McCartney can't read and write music. So true. <laughs> and he talks about that openly. Yeah. And and but I would dare anyone to say that he's not a literate musician. That's so true. Yes. Right? Yeah. And and if we look at cultures across the world, I mean, you'll see a five year old who in Africa who can play drums. Just these complex rhythms and patterns and things on drums, but they can't read and write music. So do we dare say that child's not musically literate? And so yeah, so it is. It's it's very broad. It's very holistic. You know, it's really looking at uh, the knowledge, the skills, um, and the dispositions, kind of all together. What are what are these children able to do, or what are what are we able to do um, the, as as musicians? What do musicians need to be able to do? Yeah. And how does that all work and interconnect? Which definitely makes it a little muddier to navigate. It's not so <laughs> clean cut, right? Um, As reading and writing music, but I think it's really important. You know, does it really matter if a student who wants to be, um, you know, a, a hip hop artist, that they can read Western Standard Notation? I mean, does that yeah. really, you know, maybe, and maybe I think that there's value yeah. and I'm not poo-pooing that, but like, I, you know, I think their ability to be able to hear, you know, hear things and be able to, uh, you know, rap and, and create rhymes that they can put in context of you know, very complex rhythmic sequences and things like that, like. That's really important literacy for them. So, yeah, yeah.
1: And I, I think that that's one of the complexities that I'm, I'm glad you're bringing to the fore today is because I don't think people really realize how complex music is or music literacies sure. are, right? Yeah. Because it's a lot of different behaviors and a lot of different abilities that Absolutely. go into this. It's yeah. not just one, you know, like, oh, I can play an instrument or oh, I can read the notes. Yes. It's a variety of things that then lead to many other kinds of literacy. I mean, we talk about how important music is to learning creativity and problem solving and these other kinds of things. So, that makes it even more holistic well, yeah, you can go.
2: You can go down the, the road. <laughs> yeah. I mean, talking about these important, uh, you know, I'm a huge advocate of popular music. That's something that I really think needs to be utilized more in the schools, not getting rid of what we are studying. I think folk songs important and classical music and all genres and styles. But I think popular music, gets a bad rap sometimes yeah. because it's everywhere and we're so exposed to it and all of these, you know, whatever arguments. But um, but but yeah, I mean, popular music is is not only developing musical literacies because these children have it in their ears. They know it. It resonates with them. And in some ways, the simple forms and the simple melodies make it even easier to teach and, and work from and, and help them understand and develop literacy to perform it. But it also meets popular culture literacies. I mean – it's the one kind of music that changes right with yep. with society so and with context and it, it meets um, the participatory literacies that we're talking about now with 21st century you know getting on and and YouTubing putting up a video and commenting on videos and and getting in these like you know digital uh, communities and sharing music and pulling people's i mean and and so yeah you're right like you yeah. can go down a whole thing on all the literacies and and yeah. how deep it goes yeah. for sure
1: well one of the things for me that I'm passionate about is those performance literacies, yes. right? And and I understand that not everybody may be a performing musician, but performance for me is so critical as part of some of these literacies. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the role that performance plays in music and why is it so important that we do that?
2: Well, I mean, I think performance, you know, to be able to perform, you have to really have like pretty sound skills on on whatever instrument you're using and um, be pretty adept at understanding music and, you know, being able to reproduce music or create music. Um, you can't perform something, you know, that you don't know how to either read and, and perform or listen to and replicate or create uh, for someone. So performing is definitely, our, our I think, our number one medium in music. And that's how we share music. And that's how, um, you know, it's transmitted everywhere. So I think there is a lot of emphasis on performing in the schools for that reason, which I think is really important um, for for our students to have those experiences. And I think, you know, but I think it's remembering that, we don't necessarily need to be able to read and write music to perform music. Um, You know, popular, uh, going back to the popular music conversation, a lot of those musicians learn by ear. And and I think even jazz musicians, you know, a lot of what they do is is by ear and having those opportunities to listen and then just play and improvise on the spot like that. And so not getting so mired, I, I hate to see people get really mired in reading and writing music because I feel like that is one aspect of performing music, which is so important, but there's so many other things to consider and develop to make strong performers. Yeah. Well, and for me, there's some, you know, basic
1: virtues there like courage and <gasps> grit and, you know, all of these Absolutely. other kinds of things. And in my estimation, part of performing is what makes us better, right? Yes. Because you can practice all you want in the privacy of your own home or by yourself, and you're actually not going to improve as much, in my estimation, than if you practice and then give it a performance.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, how do you see that? Absolutely. Well, and I'm even thinking about the higher order thinking skills that that requires, right? Like to really synthesize, you know, what it is that you're performing, to be able to actually perform it, to reflect on those performances, to make adjustments, to constantly be refining your work and thinking critically about, You know, anytime you're in the practice room, what's working, what's not working and how do I fix it? I love that you brought up grit. There's nothing like playing the same four measures of music (laughs) a million times so that you can get it right in a performance, right? And then there's just the resilience. I mean, learning how to fail because, you know, that's part of it too. Getting up and I know I've had a number of performances that maybe didn't go so well and walking (laughs) away.
5: Thinking, and taking it
2: as a learning experience yeah. right yeah. and learning how to do that and that's hard for kids yeah. to, to you know fail comfortably and understand yeah. that that's part of what we need yeah. to do making mistakes is okay yeah well so. and and to
1: fail in front of other people too yeah. I I think that that's an interesting connection because we can fail in private or we can fa- fail in like small interpersonal ways sure but I think it's very rare that we fail in grand scale. And not that every child should do that, but there is something about developing that grit and perseverance. Yeah. That failing on that kind of scale or knowing you could have done better helps us to move forward in a really
2: interesting way. Yeah. yeah. Realizing that it's not the end of the world, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that that's, I mean, it feels really crummy, but, but coming back from that, like you yeah. said, having that yeah. grit and just bouncing back and, and moving forward and dusting yourself yeah. off. And, yeah. um, I know I'm, you know, I've got young, kids, and I'm working on that with my own kids, yeah. you know, not allowing things, one little thing to go wrong, to just shut down Yeah. Your well,
1: and there's that interesting balance, too, particularly per- performing for me, is that, you know, even though you make a mistake, it, you do some really great things, too, right? So there's this wonderful balance of, okay, I succeeded all of these great things, but then I had this one issue and not letting that shut you down or prevent you from continuing Absolutely. is part of learning that, right? Absolutely. That context.
2: Absolutely. And music and performing music is, you know you brought up 21st century skills a while ago and, and just, you know, the collaborative aspect, the communication, music in itself is a form of communication. So when we're talking literacy, You know, sometimes we forget that, that we can convey... Yeah. You know, expressions and feelings through yeah. a musical performance. And that's a whole other realm of communication that's really important yeah. to experience. Well, too. and I
1: don't think people, I think we take it for granted, particularly in this day and age, how much it does that. Because we're just so used to it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, look at a film without the score, and it's a totally different film yes. for that very reason. The music brings the emotion. You know, we know it's scary
2: because of the music. Exactly. Not because exactly, because of the
1: actors do. Yeah, it's, that's <laughs> what sets up that
2: intensity and that, yeah. that suspense, for sure. It makes such a difference, and yeah. so yeah, there's just there's there's so many wonderful literacies to be developed that go beyond just the musical literacy, yeah.
1: which is why music is so significant and important and absolutely we are passionate about it. I'm definitely passionate about it <laughs> yes i I am passionate about it too. It's one of those things that. I think if every child could be an active participant in music, we would see a lot less negativity in a lot of kids' lives.
2: I agree. And I yeah. think you know, the, that goes for the arts in general. Yeah. I just think yeah. um, it just helps with well-rounded human beings and uh and something that they'll appreciate for the rest of their life, whether or not they decide to make music when they're thirty, they're gonna they're gonna be music connoisseurs. Yeah. They're they're gonna it's gonna be a part of their life in some way and yeah. understanding it is important. So here's three cheers for music literacy. Yay, yeah, yeah. We love
1: it. Thank you so
2: much, Brittany. You're welcome.
1: Brittany May is a music education professor at BYU. One of my favorite things about summer is the fact that libraries all over the country create amazing summer programs for children and adults. I recently had the chance to talk with two local librarians, Lindsay Watts and Meredith Zobel, about what programs are happening at their library this summer
3: day is like a different theme so the first one will be experiment like um, an astronaut so studying asteroids and rockets then the next one is eat like an astronaut Ooh. okay <laughs> that's totally rocking oh yeah yeah then prep for the moon so you can make your own jet pack lots of fun activities and then for the last day is going to the moon so experiments with moonwalking and gravity yeah Pretty cool. Which is really cool because not only does that kind
1: of extend their STEM knowledge and their science knowledge, but hopefully gets them started asking questions yeah. about how how the world works and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things they want to
6: answer. What so another at? one that Lindsay mentioned earlier is our virtual reality oh, kits very that cool. our uh, technology department has developed and takes they take them around to the branches and they've de- um connected with a program called VR Universe Sandbox. Okay. So that will allow um, participants to use our virtual reality kits to explore the universe uh, with each other and and, uh, through that technology. And we also have a partnership with NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. They came out last summer and did some programs, but for sure this summer they're coming mm-hmm. out and doing some more programs. One of them is called Meteor Right, Meteor Wrong.
1: <laughs> okay, the,
6: the title alone is intriguing. Exactly. We love good plays on Oh yes, yes, yes. We yes.
1: love we're, a good pun. We're very, we're very good at words in libraries. I love
6: it. We have partnerships with Tracy Aviary and they will come and do nature programs at branches um, to get the people out into the community and see how they can make connections with nature, even in downtown Salt Lake City. I love yeah. it.
1: That's so good. I mean, I think for me, this is one of you know the fun things about being a public librarian is you get to do all these fun mm-hmm. programs. And you sit down at the beginning of the year and you think, okay, what cool things exactly. can I do?
3: What would I want to go <laughs> to? What,
1: what would I want to go to? And what was the con- what is the context that I could yep, that I exactly. could do? And you're just like, ooh, this is really mm-hmm. fun. So the sky ends up being the limit. <laughs> In a lot of these kinds of things. <laughs> Indeed. <literally. laughs> what is the most exciting thing for you as you put mm. these programs on? I mean, what what is the thing that you'd love to see the most or the thing that makes you happiest as a librarian
3: as, as these programs go forward? Oh, gosh. I mean it seems like it's the kind of like that simple Idea, but when the kids come back after they've done activities or completed their tracker, and they're just so excited. They're going to tell you all the fun things they did, and um, they just can't believe that these activities they've done have earned them prizes um, or, you know, given them an opportunity to enter into, like, some awesome grand prize. And when those grand prizes are given out, Man, like <laughs> pure joy, yeah,
7: is From the only ages. way I can describe yeah. it. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. well,
1: and uh, that's the thing. I mean, even and I've even seen it. If they don't win the prize, just the, you like you mm-hmm. said, the joy of participation mm-hmm. brings a lot of a lot of engagement. And I've been in libraries with some of these animal shows, and these kids mm-hmm. seeing these beautiful birds or other things, that that wonder is just mm-hmm. so exciting because yeah. that's what stories are all about, right? Mm-hmm. It's wonder. Exactly. Here on Worlds Awaiting, we care deeply about literacy and nurturing a passion for learning in every child. However, some children have more challenges than others. I'm in the studio today with Vicki Elan, an author and director of the Wonderwood Academy, a school for children with Down syndrome. Welcome, Vicki. Thank you. Vicki, you and I met when we were having a wonderful read-aloud day at my library, and you came in with a group of students that you work with that have Down syndrome, and we had some wonderful conversations about reading and literacy around this topic, and I wanted to introduce you to my listening audience because you have such a wonderful perspective on this. So first, as we start out today, tell us a little bit about what is the challenge that we have? when we have students with Down syndrome or children with Down syndrome, particularly when it comes to reading? What are some of the cognitive things that we face?
7: Well, one thing we face that many people don't think about is that students with Down syndrome are often very aware that they are not quite making the grade in their classroom at school. They realize other people are reading faster than they are, or they're reading more difficult books than they are, and that starts to make them feel like, this is too hard. I can't do it. I'm not a reader. They're readers, but that's not me. Um, a, A typical reaction of people with Down syndrome to a difficult task is to turn to one of the mechanisms that they've learned for avoiding challenges. And they all have their list of, of behaviors or, or ways of sidetracking the teacher to avoid something that's challenging. So I think our, our biggest challenge in introducing reading to people with Down syndrome is showing them that it's worth it because it's fun. And I think that that's a big key for all children, right? We have to show them that it's
1: worth it because it's fun. But I think particularly in this situation that helping them get that self-identity that I am a reader is so critical because if they don't identify themselves as a reader, then they're not going to be a reader. So how might we approach that? What are some of the things that you have found that work, particularly with a child with Down syndrome, to help them really get that identity that says, yes, I am a reader, even if I have these challenges, or I'm slower, or, you know, not quite where I perceive other children to be. How can I see myself as a reader?
7: Well, If you understand that children with Down syndrome are very motivated by social connections and by interpersonal bonds, I think the biggest way for them to see themselves as a reader is to be included in a group of other readers. So they're not reading by themselves so much as they are reading with three other people. When you're reading aloud to your children, I see it as not so um, advantageous to read to one child at a time. I know a lot of parents like that personal time. With my daughter who has Down syndrome, she wants to be part of the group, so we read to all the children at once. And there are advantages to that, like we're reading material that varies in levels, and we're playing finger games on on one night, and the next night we're reading Tom Sawyer, And but she feels motivated because she feels like she is part of that reading group
1: putting us together as a group and making reading social, I think is something we don't often think about. Because I think sometimes we we consider reading to be a very solitary act. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, it is a very social act and reading aloud or even discussing books that we're reading with each other can kind of bridge that gap. And it it sounds like particularly with children with Down syndrome, that that would be one of the main keys is to bridge that gap between the isolation of reading and the social aspect of reading, is that correct?
7: That's right, and they do that better, of course, in second and third grade, the teacher reads aloud and they play games or they take turns reading aloud. But as the the students get older, our students are usually just kept catching up. So when they are in third and fourth grade, they're not reading socially quite as much anymore, and our students are still beginning readers. They're learning to read, but they still need a lot of that social interaction. And basing that social interaction
1: helps us to kind of bridge that level, I would think. Like you said, when you read aloud, you can have a broader level than you would if you aren't reading aloud. So using some of those techniques to kind of not only make that social interaction happen, but then also to bridge some of these level deficits that we might be encountering would be fairly easy i would think i mean it doesn't seem like it's it doesn't seem like it's that difficult to do a few of these things to help these these students engage with reading and to see them them very much themselves as a reader have have you seen that particularly with your daughter how how have you worked with her to help her kind of bridge these deficits and to see herself
7: as a reader well uh, one thing she loves is pictures of herself with other people, and she has pictures on her wall of her reading with her friends, and she sees herself as part of that group. She sees we keep a reading log for the for the reading class that she's taking right now. She's very proud of all the titles that she's read, and she's starting to feel like, I read as much as anybody else. But I do want to talk about one other thing that's very important in helping her um, adopt reading as her own personal Hobby, and that is the choice of books. So, for her and for other students with Down syndrome, that is a big key. They're very emotional, very compassionate, very empathetic, and teachers often mistakenly think that it's fine to let students of the, in the later elementary grades, read books that are sad, that are about tragedies and divorces and deaths. And even pets dying can be far too traumatic for students with Down syndrome. So if if I want a student with Down syndrome to feel that she loves all books, I'm the one who needs to be in control of the choice of books, just in the background, making sure that she's not reading where the red fern grows. She's, she would be devastated for weeks. That's, that's an important key. Thank you for sharing that. I I am
1: all an advocate for student choice no mm-hmm. matter what the situation so mm-hmm. yay for student choice because I think sometimes we as parents even kind of want our children to read what we love or mm-hmm. f- not force isn't the right word we you know we encourage them along paths that may not be the right kinds of paths for them mm-hmm. and finding the right book for the right child I think is key to this process and it sounds like particularly with students with Downstrom, Down syndrome, that that's even more key to this process.
7: So we're choosing happy books, funny books, books about things that they love. Another common characteristic for people with Down syndrome is they find an interest and become almost compulsive about it and we think well you're on your fourth book about sharks let's read something else but <laughs> i think part the of our world is six books that, about exactly. sharks <laughs> and, and they can learn a great deal about our world even if all they're reading about is sharks so i am an advocate of that too let them choose what they're fascinated by
1: i really love that 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 sense of yes let's just let them read and let them go deeply and you know if it's the 100th book about sharks we we shouldn't be we shouldn't be too worried about that um it's in, it's so interesting to me that so much of what you're saying is what i advocate for for all children, right? right. And for all children's uh, reading because i i think sometimes as adults we get we get these things in our minds like oh yeah, you're on that fourth book, we got to move on, right. right? But that's something we need to advocate for all children. So the these similarities here are so so wonderfully delightful because whether we have a child with down syndrome or a child with a learning disability or a child who's you know has gifted tendencies, any of those, these statements that you're saying apply <laughs> to all of them. When Let's talk a little bit about you as a parent, right? So you as a parent and how you engage with your your children as a family with reading. So how do you make this that social piece you say you read aloud together, but there are there other things that you do as a family to kind of engage together as a family in in the reading
7: endeavor? Well, we read to actually that's the way my daughter learned to read is reading with the entire family every night, starting out by just repeating the sound of "t" when her father said it to then reading the whole word and then reading two or three words after he said it. It was a very social experience that was how she learned to read. But when she became older and was a good beginning reader, I think one of the things we did well is keep our house messy with books. And we've talked about that people with Down syndrome generally have a, a stronger and more functional right side of their brain than left. That makes them very visual. They need to see the covers of books everywhere they go. And that's enticing. It's not talking so much about um, go read your book now. It's having five books visible in the living room every day, or in our case, probably 25.
1: Well, I think more people in this world need to have their house messy with books. So, mm-hmm. all of these statements are are so insightful in helping us understand how how children with Down syndrome engage with reading, but they apply just as well to they any do. child in the world. <laughs> Thank you so much, Vicky. This has been insightful and interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with it's us today. Been fun. Thank you. Vicky Elin is the director of the Wonderwood Academy. Now, join me around the Librarian's Table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. I'm in the studio with Andy Spackman and Letty Camacho, business librarians here at BYU. You both work with a program that is designed for business students to help them learn skills and develop a a wide range of skills. One of the things that you talk about in that class is particularly presentation skills and how to present themselves, not only the information they find and how to present that information, but also kind of in business contexts. So, can you talk a little bit about the, that part of the course that you guys work with? And then, why do you think it's important that they have that kind of learning and skill as part of this, this course?
8: Sure. If, if you look at MCOM as a course and you look at the, the learning outcomes, for the course, you, you could summarize them in three words, write, design, and speak, and those are the things that, that, that we teach in COM, in MCOM, how to, how to write business documents, how to design business documents and presentation aids, and uh, then how to speak, how to present, um, whether it's going to be online or over the phone or uh, in person. So th- those are the three main outcomes for the course. And, you know, in the old days, these business communications courses, they were really just business writing classes. And uh, the the public speaking, the presenting, the pitching aspect has become so important in not only the business world, but in practically any professional context, uh, that it's it, it, it's grown to take its place in, in the business communications curriculum as well. And one of, the, one of the things that we teach in MCOM that I think is particularly important is, is, is audience. Because when you go into a presentation, you usually are uh, really passionate about what it is that you have to tell them. Um, whether you 're trying to pitch something and, and and sell it to them or uh, to teach them or convince them about some change that needs to be made you're really you 're convinced and you 're really passionate about them, but you can lose sight of who it is that you 're talking to. One way to think about this is uh, Nancy Duarte, who 's an expert on public speaking, one of the things that she says is uh, that you need to remember when you 're presenting that you 're not luke skywalker you're not the hero i love it (laughs) instead you should be yoda and you're 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 bringing something you're mentoring you're trying to bring your audience along on this this journey give them something but most importantly you need to make them feel like they're the hero they're the they're the star
1: i love that analogy. <laughs> That's a cool way to look at it. Letty, what kind of role do you play in this, particularly as you help them find information and then present their information in a written form as well? How, how do you help them see audience?
5: I talk to them an audience when they start putting together their report. Who are you writing to? And that's going to determine where you go. There's a lot of information in there, but depending on who you're writing to, that's the approach that you're going to take. In actually looking at them presenting, that's something that I have had an opportunity to do. Some of the professors have invited me to go when they are presenting. And that is a pretty exciting experience because you're able to see, you didn't know where they were going to go with the information that they found and to see how creative they they get and how well they are, what they do and how the class is working because they've become pretty good presenters. And I think that that's the good news. The you don't, do not need to be born a great speaker. There is people that are born that way, that they are much easier and confident in speaking, but there's people that struggle, and that doesn't mean that's how it needs to stay. They practice in their skills. They can get to be good at it, and that can really benefit their future career if they do that.
8: Yeah, that's that's definitely true. You don't have to be born a good presenter. And even though in MCOM, we teach presentation skills, things like um, gesture or eye contact or voice or whatever, we teach those things. But we also emphasize that the, the most important factors for success when you're speaking or presenting are the quality and the organization of your content. And you can succeed without... You know, being the next TED Talk speaker or or whatever, you can accomplish your purposes as long as you understand who your audience is and their perspective and you have some quality uh, evidence to support what it is you're trying to do and you've organized it in a way that's going to be easy for them to, to take in.
1: So that's where the information literacy piece comes in, right? Because you need to have the good information and then know how to organize it, and then you can present it well. So as you experience this class with the students, what kind of growth do you see? I mean, you talked about how they do improve and that we see this, but, but what are some of those milestones that you see in their growth and development and in, in becoming better communicators that can help them throughout their lives?
5: Well, during my session, I see change. Um, They come and they are a little bit concerned if they're going to find information. And as we work together, one of the things that they always share with me is how easy it was to find information. And um, so they learn how to work with different um, terms, uh, keywords, and how to identify the best resources for their topic. And that is not that difficult that they can do it. And so I think it makes them more confident in their skills.
8: Right. So I not only uh, support Letty as a librarian with the the library aspect of MCOM, but I also will teach a section of MCOM every semester. And I tell my students that, you know, I might not be their their favorite professor that semester, or and and it might not necessarily be uh, their funnest class that semester. But I can guarantee them that it's it is going to be a class that those those skills and things that they're going to learn and practice in that course are things that they're going to be able to carry throughout their lives and use uh, daily, both in their work and in their uh, personal lives. And I, you know, in the feedback that I receive for, from students, not only during and after the semester, but sometimes, uh, you know, a year or, or several years after the class, you um, I'll hear from them just how much they've been able to to apply those those principles that they learned and practiced in the class.
1: Well, just goes to show you how important communication and taking time to learn those communication skills are for for life and work and all these things these students have to do. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your experience with us today.
8: Sure,
5: thank you. Thank you.
1: I'd like to thank Andy and Letty for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We talked with Heather Price about her creative writing. Then we chatted with Brittany May, a music education professor about musical literacy. And in our last interview, we discussed with Vicki Elin how to help children with Down Syndrome develop a love for reading. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.